นโมทัสสะกูตัวระหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกูตัวระหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกูตัวระหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามัสAs usual on Saturday nights, we recite together the Dhammachakapavatana Sutta, the Buddha's first teaching, the Buddha's first discourse, the, uh, describing his insight, his realization into the relevance of the Four Noble Truths. And so this. Teaching on the Four Noble Truths, but many of us have recited it over and over again, and read about it and heard about it. And there's always the risk with repetition that we start to assume that we know, that we understand, and. The advantage of repetition is that it gives us an opportunity or to consider again what the Buddha is pointing towards. And in this case, the pointing towards the realization of four noble truths is is the most fundamental aspect of all the Buddha's teachings. Everything else is an expression of this insight, of this realization, and. The risk that we fall into assuming we understand it is perhaps due in part to the habits that we have of thinking that we need to accumulate more. We approach the Buddha's teachings with the idea that we need to get understanding. We need to get something that we don't have. We need to get. Insight. We need to get awakening. This relationship to desire, this believing that we are, this activity of mind that we call wanting, trying to get something. On the outside, it might feel justified, might look virtuous, but in reality, it, it's a major obstruction. Is getting in the way of our understanding what the Buddha was really talking about. This teaching on realizing the four noble truths is about letting go of wanting, not getting rid of wanting. Wanting is like just like fire. We wouldn't want to get rid of all fire. We couldn't live in Northumberland if we didn't have fire. But fire needs to be contained. We need to understand the nature of fire. We need to have a wise relationship with fire, or we get burned. Mm. Likewise, we need to have a wise understanding, a wise relationship to wanting. Otherwise, we get burned. And this is what the Buddha was pointing to: craving, burning, that we suffer from. There's a cause for it. And we need to understand this. And if we do understand this, then it completely changes our relationship to life. 
you know, to the point where suffering ceases. It doesn't mean to say, well, pain ceases, that's another thing, but suffering ceases. And, and this is the insight that the Buddha was pointing towards. And, and it's not about accumulating more information. It's not about getting something more. We start out in our approach to Buddhism. We want to get the basic understanding. That's natural. But very quickly, we need to understand that clinging, even to initial level of understanding the Buddha's teachings, is not it. It can become an obstacle. That we have this tendency towards accumulating is, is perfectly expectable. Yeah, as children, we always trying to get food and get security and mm-hmm. accumulate my things. And culturally, we live in a consumer society, accumulating stuff. Egotistically, we live in a culture of promoting personality and how many people like me probably matters now more to our egos than probably even ever before throughout all human history. So this inclination towards accumulating is to be expected. However, if we really want to get the point, if we really want to see what the Buddha saw and know what the Buddha knew, then we need to take it to another level. This habit of accumulating is a major obstruction. This attitude, this approach of I need more gets in the way. It came up in conversation recently, speaking with somebody about a time when I was visiting America and uh, my host happened to be somebody who had a unfortunate uh, hoarding tendency, seriously unfortunate, and they had a beautiful house, very very beautiful house, near the sea and great neighbourhood and um, very well off and comfortable. But when you walk into the house, it was not all the way up to the ceiling, but halfway up the walls, mm. stuff, you know, magazines things that have been clipped out of newspapers and, and books and the basement was the basement was floor to ceiling chock-a-block full of noodles and tins of food and and there's no way that the single person living there could have ever consumed everything and the, the, the kitchen you couldn't get into the sink and the fridge door was very difficult to close literally because of this accumulation of stuff and from what I've read, this this uh, habit of hoarding is a, it's not rare. And whether it's a form of OCD or not, I, I don't know what they say these days, but it's certainly a disorder and a very sad and painful disorder. And, but in a way, I think it's emblematic of how in our materialistically oriented society, people turn to stuff to cope with their feelings of insecurity. 
And we have to be careful that we don't allow something like this to be occupying our otherwise good motivations in practice. Trying to get samadhi, trying to get results, inclination to assume we need more than what we've got is born out of just this just this point that the Four Noble Truths is, is, is describing, that this relationship to desire that creates suffering. Desire itself, wanting itself is not the problem, but clinging to desire creates a problem, mm-hmm. creates craving. So this teaching is not about accumulating as in, we just chanted just now, patinisago, chago patinisago, relinquishing, letting go. This is what the Buddha's teaching is about. It's about letting go. It's not about getting more. It can feel like we need more, but that's because we're caught up in the momentum of desire and we're always restless and deludes us into thinking that we'll be happy when we get more. It's like an itch and you've got a wound that is healing and it's itching and you'll feel better when you scratch it. It really feels like if I scratch this, I'm going to feel better. That's apparent reality. That's delusion. That requires a shift in perspective. It requires a kind of understanding, a, a cultivated Understanding, not a habitual reaction. The habitual reaction is to scratch the itch. The habitual reaction is to follow the desire to try and get better samadhi, to try and get more insight, to try and accumulate more Buddhist stuff. Some of you are probably familiar with that teaching the Buddha gave to the first bhikkhuni, Mahapajapati, where she wanted a summary of the Buddha's teaching. She wanted to know what is Dhamma and what is not Dhamma. And so the Buddha gave this very helpful, very clear summary of the teachings and said, that which accords with this is Dhamma. That which accords with that is not Dhamma. And, and he gave this list of eight points. Uh, dispassion. That which accords with dispassion is Dhamma. That which doesn't is not Dhamma. Detachment, that which accords with detachment is Dhamma. That which accords with attachment is not Dhamma. All of these points, dispassion, detachment, dispersal, dispersal, the opposite of amassing. Instead of accumulating more, dispersal, letting go. Dispassion, detachment, dispersal, modesty, contentment, frugality, effort, solitude, all of these eight points that the the Buddha indicated to Bhikkhuni Mahapajapati, they're all about relinquishing, patinisago, letting go. This is important to to really feed into our contemplations and really consider carefully and so that we don't fall into the habit of assuming that 
we need more. That's what certainly the uh, saying, the culture we live in, the world we live in, there's so much of the information that our senses pick up, uh, tell us that we're somehow lacking. And it's, it's the story of the, the capitalist economic system. It's what keeps it going, basically. Uh, program people with this idea that they need these products and people keep buying the products and that keeps this system functioning in a certain way. It destroys the planet and creates a lot of unhappiness and makes a, a few people mega wealthy. It's certainly not wise. Certainly not path to freedom from suffering. So in the Buddha, in his wisdom and compassion, pointed to that which does lead to the freedom from suffering. And it's radically different. We need to really we need to really factor this in. This is not just about another level of understanding, not just getting more information about reality. This is a this is about transformation of consciousness. Everybody has some sort of consciousness. But we can think about the difference between everyday common and garden variety consciousness and awakened consciousness is like the difference between carbon dust and diamonds. Carbon dust, I mean, so what? Carbon dust is just not particularly valuable and can make an awful mess. Not of any great interest, really. That's common and garden variety, unawakened consciousness. It's not cultivated, not transformed. But the Buddha's consciousness was cultivated, was transformed. Same element, it's still consciousness, just as diamonds are still carbon, but it's transformed into something really precious, really valuable, really useful. Actually also very rare. Radically different from carbon dust. Everyday common and garden variety consciousness, just like carbon dust, can make a big mess. Greed, hatred and delusion, which pollutes the planet and leads to huge imbalance between the haves and have-nots. It's all born out of this ignorant understanding, ignorant perception, misinformed relationship with wanting. Again, wanting itself is not the problem. The Buddha had wanting, the Buddha had desires. If he didn't, he wouldn't have been motivated to give teachings and help. He was motivated to eat food, motivated to take exercise. Wanting has got a place. However, in wanting is not informed with right view, with clear understanding, then it, like uncontained fire, when it gets out, creates all sorts of trouble. So this is what this teaching of the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, the Buddha's first discourse and the turning of the wheel of the law, description of his insight into the relevance of the Four Noble Truths, this is what it's about. And this invitation to walk the path of 
realization rather than just following the, the currents of everyday conditioning it does require training and, and it does mean going against the currents of the world mm. remember that story that from the time of just prior to the Buddha's awakening where sitting by the river he had eaten his meal and he floated his bowl in the river and he made this vow that if the bowl floats upstream instead of going with the current downstream if the bowl floats upstream it'll be an indication that he's going to realize perfect freedom, perfect liberation and and the bowl did indeed float upstream and you can understand it as symbolizing that the Buddhist consciousness was already going against the currents of the world, the currents of worldly conditioning. Now talking like this is not is not judging worldly condition or judging desire or judging people who follow desires. It's nothing to do with that. This is this is a description of what happens when somebody directs their attention in accordance with what the Buddha is pointing out here, the Four Noble Truths, and rather than following the conditioned momentum of wanting, investigates the kind of relationship we have with wanting. Restrains the habit of just following wanting. That's, and this is why you know, I've spoken several times recently about nekamma parami or renunciation, partly just because I really enjoy the contemplation on this force for transformation that we call renunciation. But also I think it's, 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 it's essential on this journey. And now, how we pitch our commitment to the cultivation of renunciation, you know, whether it means embracing the, the discipline that the Buddha laid down for monks and nuns to live by, yeah. that might be suitable. Maybe it's not suitable for everybody. Well, it's not suitable for everybody. But everybody needs to understand the principle of the ability to go against the conditioning. If we don't have that ability to say no to our conditioned nature, then there isn't the possibility of investigating our relationship with wanting. We're not going to be able to apply the Four Noble Truths if we don't have the inclination to restrain conditioned tendencies. We just follow wanting. It's just like if we, it's exactly the same as if we didn't discipline our diet. If we just ate what we thought looked good, smelt good, or even tasted good, no guarantee we're going to have good health. Not at all. In fact, quite the opposite. There's a lot of things look good, smell good, and even taste good, and they're really, really not good. Make us very sick. We need to use the mind to study what our other senses are telling us. There's some things that look good, smell good and taste good that are good. No doubt about that. But we can't assume that just because they look good, smell good and taste good that they are good. We need to use disciplined attention, cultivated understanding to investigate. Is this suitable, is it not? And if we don't, well, a consequence can be disastrous with what we eat, but also with with life. I remember a very sad story I heard 
some years ago when I was visiting Sydney, Australia, and I met a young couple there who were on their way to Thailand and they asked to speak to me and they wanted to know about the process of ordination in Thailand. And He was considering becoming a monk and she was considering becoming a nun in Thailand. And I was genuinely puzzled by this because they didn't look to me as people seeking to go forth, a very handsome couple and they'd been living on a, um, a new age commune, community, and and uh, very bright people. And so what are these people going forth for? They look pretty happy doing what they're doing. And and then they related to me what had happened. They had been living on this community up in, in Queensland. And, and one day their two children, a son and a daughter, were out in the fields. And when the mother went out there, she found them and was able to just hold them in her arms as they as they died. They ate some mushrooms, poisonous mushrooms. And this idyllic world, beautiful, beautiful countryside, beautiful family situation, beautiful life, within seconds was turned upside down into a hellish experience. Fortunately, they had access to Dhamma teachings and and they really clicked in. The Dhamma teachings really meant something. From that point onwards, the Dhamma teachings were like a lifeline. Now, they weren't just interesting information, they weren't just an add-on. It transformed their approach to life completely. So, uh, the willingness to cultivate whatever it is that brings us to Dhamma, appreciating that there are certain principles that really conduce with this training and renunciation is one of them. At whatever level we, in our heart of hearts, if this is suitable, this is suitable. Mm-hmm. And we commit ourselves to it. With daring, it does take it does take a daring spirit, and this, as I mentioned, that image of the the bowl floating upstream, going against the current of the worldly conditioning. And on this journey, it's it's as I say, it's, it's a radical shift from what we were used to, and it's right that we prepare ourselves for that. Somebody asked Ajahn Chah once what made him so different he obviously was different and not just different from the average person but different also from from most monks and I think it was one of the western monks that asked him you know there's hundreds of, there's tens of thousands of monks in Thailand what makes you different and Ajahn Chah said well I was more daring than the others I'm glad I'm poor my glad I'm and he was, it was clear that the moment we have this uh, beautiful volume produced by Ajahn Jayasaro, uh, Stillness Flowing, as uh, the biography of Ajahn Chah's life. And if you read that, you see the many examples of Ajahn Chah's daring spirit and daring investigations. And 
daring to confront his fears in a very powerful way, but with very significant benefit. He would experiment also. He would daring to experiment in ways that not necessarily the tradition. He would go fasting, which is not something that, at least in Thailand, not most most monks don't experiment with fasting and solitude. And, and then also his relationship to the monastic training, his commitment to a very strict interpretation of the training, his commitment to not handling money. A lot of monks handle money and the Buddha was very clear his laying down the monastic discipline, the Vinaya, that his disciples do not handle money, do not keep money, do not use money. And Ajahn Shah was very strict on that. When he was a young monk, he did use money, like all those around him, but he got to the point and realized, well, if I'm serious about this venture, if I'm interested in the real thing, which he was, you know, I need to do what the Buddha said to do. And so his daring spirit encouraged him in his commitment. Now, what that might mean in our case, well, you know, sometimes we might read these things and hear the stories of the great masters, what Ajahn Man used to get up to, and Ajahn Man Bur, and Ajahn Chah and these various great teachers and their renounce practices of renunciation and asceticism and we might think that we should be doing that as well but we need to be very honest with ourselves and very careful and make sure we're going through the right stages of training. You know, if you look at how Ajahn Chah and these great teachers began their training they, they were living with teachers who set a very good example and and they had to forget about doing what they wanted to do. It was only after many years of submitting to the training, studying the Vinaya, gradually increasing their ability to practice as a monk, similarly for nuns. There's gradual accumulation of ability before they embraced these intense levels of practice. and So sometimes for us, being daring might mean daring to go against our heroic ambitions to, to become enlightened and exercise modesty. Daring to, be, daring to be gentle with ourselves rather than judgmental. If we go into the spiritual life with a compulsively judging mind, we can hurt ourselves terribly and cause ourselves a lot of harm. Self-harming is not just something we do with our fingernails to our wrists and, you know, or to our arms. Self-harming can also happen on a psychological level with very serious consequences. So modesty, gentleness, patience, or the daring approach which means we're willing to own up to that conditioned tendency that makes us feel special. Most egos these days think that they're special. It's the way we've been programmed. 
it's not wrong, it's not abnormal. It's absolutely normal given the kind of conditioning that 21st century egos are subjected to. It's But to be willing to exercise the discipline of attention and turn around and look at that, I think I am special. Whether it's specially wonderful and specially gifted, with special potential, specially hopeless, specially damaged goods, doesn't matter. Contracted egos manifest all sorts of peculiar distortions. But it does take a daring nature, a daring spirit to go against the current which pulls us along into worldliness. A lot of our so-called spiritual efforts are are really very worldly. Trying to get more understanding about Buddhism, trying to get more samadhi, trying to get more insight all of these impulses to get more can be an, express, an expression of the obstructions of consciousness that we're suffering from. This teaching that we chanted tonight, the Dhamma Chakrapawatana Sutta, the Buddha's explanation of the relevance of the Four Noble Truths and, and encouragement to cultivate these insights, is, this is what it's about. It's about a willingness to question these assumptions that we have about the nature of desire. If we follow our worldly conditioning, actually, it's probably just going to create more obstructions. With right cultivation, with renunciation, with daring spirit, with patience, with gentleness, with modesty, all those eight points that the Buddha taught to Bhikkhuni Mahapajapati, dispassion, detachment, dispersal, modesty, contentment, frugality, effort and solitude, with this kind of cultivation, we're doing what the Buddha was encouraging us to do. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. <coughs> <coughs> Thank you.